Welcome to Common Thread. We hope you find these lessons helpful, but also we'd like to get to know you. If you go to our website slash newcomer, we'll send you an email, some things to read about the community, and an invitation to a personal chat. If you're here in Raleigh, maybe face-to-face. If not, on Zoom. We hope you will. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. Okay, here's the lesson. Curious people uh, challenge some part of a lesson that I give. I love that. It's not as fun when some axe to grind people do it, but when curious people do it, it is. When people say, whoa, 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 Doug, are you saying, surely you can't mean, oh, come on. I like it even better when they say, Doug, that's just hooey. There's no way. <laughs> a good one a couple of weeks. Blasphemy. <laughs> that was one of my favorites. But part of why I like it is because it catalyzes a process inside of me. Okay, let's think this one through again. Let's look at it from a different angle. Let's see if we can find uh, a deeper understanding than we even had before. Is it a helpful process? Is it a helpful way of thinking about it? Let's look at it yet again. But the other part I like is a communal process because I love it when we demonstrate and to one another that we are in a community that, as Michelle said a long time ago when she was designing our newcomer uh, orientation, that we're not organized around everybody believing the same thing, but we are organized around a way that we treat one another. And we treat one another with respect and with honor, with curiosity, because we're all at different places on the journey. We're not all walking through this transformative process at the same rate. Well, that happened the last few weeks, three or four times. I've had a conversation about that lesson on praying for and talking about that concept within the same paragraphs that I talked about the placebo effect. (laughs) Had several conversations after that. Now, if you heard the lesson, you heard me be very careful not to say, ah, praying for people, that's just the placebo effect. Ah, praying for people, it's all in your head. You heard me not say that. Also, What I didn't want to say that I think a few people might have heard is to diminish the importance of SSRIs because goodness, no, those can be lifesavers in the most literal sense. Give us the bandwidth we need to do the rearranging our interior world's work that we're talking about today. That book I told you about during that lesson, Lost Connections, it cites several studies that what meds do do is lose efficacy over time. So we don't want to use them as a 20-year strategy, but we certainly want to use them to give us the bandwidth that we need to be doing the work that's going to restore connections and is going to rearrange our interior worlds. But here's what I was hoping we could take away from that lesson and referencing the placebo effect. And this part bears on today's lesson. Look at how powerful it can be if we are able to rearrange our inner stories. When people are given a placebo effect, some authority figure, a doctor or a pharmacist or a researcher with all the appropriate props, with a white coat, with a stethoscope, with degrees framed up on the wall, that authority figure tells us this sugar pill is going to make you feel better. And when they do, Sometimes our interior worlds do get rearranged and what we think changes and what we believe changes and the judgments that we make changes. And when that happens, our bodies will often line up with this new interior story. The new story tells us that we're going to get better. 
And while it doesn't change the outer world, it doesn't change our bodies every time, it does often enough that if it were a cholesterol drug, it would sail right through FDA approval. It has a very high rate of efficacy. So our inner stories shift. And when that happens, often our organs and our tissues and our bones get with the program and start pumping out the right chemicals, start initiating the right healing process. Our inner worlds do impact our outer worlds. And if that's true with the placebo effect, well then, figuring out how to rearrange our interior worlds, it ought to be something we think about carefully. Thinking about how we rearrange our worlds ought to be something that we actually make a priority. Now, in that lesson, I uh, suggested that we would want to consider that rearranging when we're thinking about the praying for practice. Well, today, the same idea, but applied in another context. Because contemporary science, as well as a whole bunch of our ancient spiritual tradition, our wisdom and our practices, have made rearranging our interior worlds a very important theme for us. Listen to a few of our ancient texts. True intent is deep in the human heart, deep water kind of deep. But even so, those with understanding will try to draw it out. The inner light intent, our under the ego self intent, our bigger than natural selection self intent, it's in there, but it's deep. But even though it's deep, men and women uh, will of wisdom will try and draw it out. But then good luck, Jeremiah says, because the human heart is deceitful. Who can understand it? And so the psalmist calls out for help, calls out for in prayer, help me, help me God, try me, test me, test my mind, show me. Rearranging and reprioritizing and rethinking our own interior worlds is about as bedrock a foundation as there is in the spiritual tradition. Now, there's a whole bunch of words we use for that, words that you will hear in the religious life, maybe hear them quite a lot, faith, or hope, or belief, or the quest for truth. They all point us to this same core reality, that there is a reality deeper than we often intuit. And sometimes we have to hold to it in spite of the fact that our ego selves are shouting something to the contrary. But when we do get to it, to that deeper life reality, our inner worlds will change. And that change has a powerful impact on our outer worlds. Thoughts change and beliefs change. Inner storytelling changes. Judgments that we make about people. Judgments that we make about that other group. Judgments about places that we can go and be comfortable. Places we can go and not be comfortable. Judgments that we make about ourselves. Judgments we make about the divine. About how the world works. About why these things happen to me. Those interior world components, they actually can become the reality we live in. They determine the way that we live, the very few days that we get on this earth. Ah, the human heart, it is indeed deceitful. And those things that get in there, they're tenacious. Once they get in there, they do not want to come out. So help me, the psalmist prays. Open my eyes, test me, try me, show me. 
Now, you know, just the way that I do in your life, we get attached to our beliefs. We get attached to the judgments that we have made. We feel very protective of them. We defend them vigorously any time that they are challenged. Sometimes we defend them aggressively. Sometimes we get red in the face. We have the popping veins. We have the raised voices. Other times we defend them a little more quietly, a little more passively, more subtly. We agree perhaps on the surface to keep the peace, make things just go by, but we find a way to forget or we find a way to deprioritize. Other times we sulk or we withdraw affection. We do non-aggressive ways, but it doesn't matter whether we're doing it aggressively or whether we're doing it passively. What we're doing is protecting our inner world systems, which is fine when our beliefs and when our judgments and our storytelling are serving us well, because we need to defend those. They're how we orient ourselves to the world. But the human condition being what it is, there are a whole bunch of times in which they are not serving us well, not serving us well at all. Because the human heart is deceitful. We do have that ego self in there as well as that interior light self. Now we think what's going on in there is noble. We think it's good. And so often, while we are thinking it's good, what it's actually doing is mucking up the works. Think back sometime you were defending some inner thing. Maybe you were raising your voice and doing it all aggressively, or maybe you were sulking, or maybe you were not making eye contact. Whatever the thing was you were doing, there's a good chance when you were doing it, you did not think to yourself that you were defending some interior belief, some interior judgment, some interior guidance system about how to be safe or how to be desirable or how to be good. There's a much better chance that what you thought you were doing was letting some jerk know about their jerkitude. There's a better chance that what you thought you were doing was standing up for truth. What you thought you were doing was straightening out somebody else's misinformation. Because the human heart, yeah, it is deceitful. So who can understand it? That's the question. So asking today's question, which was the title of today's lesson, am I as self-aware as I think I am? Before we even start, we kind of know the answer. No, (laughs) I am not as self-aware as I think I am. We're just not. So then what do we do about that? And that's today's lesson. So here are the questions that we're going to be talking about uh, afterwards. And remember, those online, next week, week after, we're going to do a Zoom version of it. So if you participate and we've got interest, we'll make it a thing. Today we're going to talk about three ways to become more aware of the deep human intent, the deep water deep. So when you hear those three approaches, here's what the questions will be about. Uh, What gets in the way of you actually practicing that one? And think of a story. Think about a time that you did practice that or a time that you could have but you didn't. How did it go? What went on? So those are the questions. Be thinking about them as the lesson goes on. So following up on last week's lesson, this week I changed my login to my computer. I made it 0090, 90 seconds. And then I realized after I'd done that a few days, I really needed to make it 0120 because uh, I, need, I could go to 120 seconds. I could go for two minutes. And it was a prompt to remind me to sit down and practice mindfulness for just that short amount of time. I could stay longer if I wanted to, and several times this week I did. But my firm commitment, my everyday, everyday, everyday commitment was 120 seconds. And then at the end, I did a two-second happy face. So you remember what we talked about 
building habits into our lives. Well, to help us think about those practices, I want to put a few of the announcements into context. So, I want to point out something that in case it you hadn't occurred to you, the things that you hear us talking about when we talk about meditation, when we talk about making th- these things practical. So, this week you were invited again to this five-minute uh, Zoom together, five minutes to rebuild consistency into our habits. Because here's what mindfulness meditation does. Here's what centering prayer does. It helps disempower the driving pressure behind our interior judgments. It helps free us from the forcefulness of those, those inner beliefs, the, that inner storytelling. And then next week, you're going to be invited to an Enneagram drop-in group after church, where we will talk with Robin informally about how our personality types tend toward this recurring blind spot or that recurring blind spot. Because, yeah, our hearts are deceitful, but it turns out there's a roadmap to that deceit. You can find out where you're most susceptible to falling into this pitfall or that one. And if we want, we can participate with the exploration of our hidden deceitful inner world judgments. And then... In March and April, you saw the invitation. You can come watch people practicing the ask the questions, self-awareness practices that help us use our triggering moments to dig into those hidden narratives. And then you come to my house on a Saturday and we'll spend most of the day kind of learning how to do that together. Now, we organize those things uh, as a community into separate groups meeting at separate times because scheduling. But in fact, they're part of an interconnected whole. They're they're a cluster of reworked and updated but very ancient ways that we participate with the psalmist's prayer. Help me, God. They're how we participate in the prayer. Try me. Test my heart. Test my mind. Show me. Practical ways that we join one another, and that's the way we help each other stay on track, is by joining each other in the pursuit of not being deceived by the human heart, which is so deceitful. Now, what all three of those groups, all those practices have in mind, have in common, is the quest to bring the hidden to the light. To bring the hidden to the light. So today, a practical framework in three parts to help us understand these three practices, but also to have them into our pocket, have them in our back pockets, so that when we're in the quest for self-awareness, we kind of know the territory, how that works. Now, the key to self-awareness, you hear it all the time, is staying in the moment we are actually in. Recentering ourselves in the here and in the now, so that when those inner, hidden inner judgments kick in, as they do, we, by staying present in the moment, are not as subject to them because those inner judgments tend to not be this moment right now kinds of judgments. They tend to be more what might happen in the future kinds of judgments. They tend to be what did happen in the past kinds of judgments. They try to either protect us from the future or they try and teach us from the past. And they often do that. They help us. They are helpful. But sometimes they're not as helpful. Sometimes they get stuck and then they keep us stuck. So our quest to become more self-aware 
three layers of self-awareness practice. The first, environmental self-awareness. We referenced this one last week when we put up that short TikTok video asking the questions, where am I, when am I? Part of self-awareness practice is just focusing our attention on a single part of the environment, drawing from one of our five senses, senses and giving singular focus to something that we taste or something that we touch or something that we see or something that we hear something that we smell. Giving singular focus to just that one thing and then doing it for 10 seconds or doing it for 30 seconds. Now, when we sit down for 90 seconds or 120 seconds in the morning or when we sit down for 20 minutes in the morning, we can practice environmental self-awareness for longer like doing a body scan meditation, which is helpful because what it does is it acclimates us, it trains us, it gets us used to the process so that in the moment it is easier for us to shift our attention from the inner world narrative that is surging up power or the brain on fire moment that's going on when an emotion rises we will be more equipped, more ready to shift our focus to environmental self-awareness. So it happens to you, happens to me, those brain on fire moments, or distractions, or some kind of energy comes surging up. What we do is we take a breath and we focus on a thing. We feel that thing in the environment. We see that thing in the environment and we shift our focus away from the surging, the distractions, to that thing, that tree, or that sound, or these lungs, or these shoulders. We step back from the racing thoughts, we step back from the surging energy, and focus instead on something that is not tied to those inner world judgments, that is not tied to those projections into the future or those regrets from the past. Something that is not about our inner judgment, not about our inner storytelling, something that is right here in this moment, right now. Because again, our inner, inner world constructs tend to focus backwards and forwards. Environmental self-awareness switches the focus to the here and the now. And usually the here and now is it best neutral, sometimes it's quite positive. This wind, the support that I feel in this chair, this person who most of the time is not threatening me. Environmental self-awareness is pretty simple if we can remember to do it. Take a breath, focus on one thing right here, right now, and without having to try that practice will switch us away from the in focus that we tend to put on our inner life judgments. Very practical tools to respond to that prayer of the psalmist, try me, test me. Now when we do that, when we shift from thinking in the past or thinking in the future, it tends to dampen those chemical responses that our body's pumping out tends to reduce that interior surging that happens. It gives us room to navigate and room to think, room to reimagine how we're going to respond, how we're going to react. So, environmental self-awareness. 
Second is emotional self-awareness, which is admittedly a little bit tougher. Now, on the face of it, it kind of seems simple. We just feel our feelings. But we have been trained as a culture, as a society, to, do, to not do that for so long. This relatively simple thing is not simple. Now, I've told about my own way of doing this several times. Um, it's less true now that I'm older, but when I was younger, if I was going to have a strong feeling, it was usually going to be some kind of stabbing anxiety. And most of the time, it was going to happen at nighttime as I was lying in bed, some surge of worry about the kids or about the church or about the future, often involving some version of catastrophic thinking in my head, uh, usually some version of being homeless, living in the dust bowl in the 40s. <laughs> Now, the practice is pretty simple when I could remember to do it. I would just watch the experience. I would lie flat on my back. My shoulders would touch the mattress. I would kick up the blanket so that they didn't push down on my feet because I felt like that was a distraction. And then I would begin to practice emotional self-awareness. What that meant was that I would watch and feel how my belly felt because that's often where those chemicals would come up for me. I would watch and feel how my chest would tighten, how my face would clench. I would feel that fire raging. I would feel the driving force to clench the muscles. And then I would feel it, and I would watch it, and I would give it my best focus and attention. Okay, feeling, you've got center stage right now. You have my whole mind. You have my undivided attention. Now, here's why we don't do that. Because hard feelings are hard. <laughs> and we don't like them. So we actually try to not do that full attention. What we actually try to do is distract ourselves. We try to look at some other thing. We try to think about something else. But here's the thing. Those sensations come from the chemicals that come pumping into our bodies in response to the narratives that we carry around in our heads. And so they're chemicals. And those chemicals are there. And they are in our bodies. But you know what's also in our bodies? There are uptake receptors. The chemicals pump into the system, but then what the uptake receptors do is take the chemicals out of the system. So do that thing, give full attention, complete attention, undivided attention, don't latch onto some meaning that comes with the sensations and don't focus on the judgments that we usually associate with those sensations, just feel those feelings. Do that, and the uptake receptors will do what uptake receptors do. They uptake those chemicals. They suck them all up. And we just can't keep feeling that level of brain-on-fire, burning-belly sensation for much longer than a minute. Maybe two, but usually less. Less than two minutes. So we watch the surge surge. And then when we do, as we practice environmental awareness, we find ourselves dampening the brain-on-fire energy, the burning belly energy. Now that helps us think a little bit more clearly, to be able to process our thoughts, to make our plans, to see things more clearly, because it turns out 
that doing this thing, examining and watching and giving full undivided attention to our emotional experiences, develops a tolerance for emotional experiences over time. They are unpleasant, that we don't tend to like them, but if we will give our full attention to them, we end up developing a tolerance for them. They're there, we might as well not avoid them, but we might as well develop the capacity to be with them, to befriend them. Because when we do, we become more able to handle them. When they come up, we are less and less hijacked by them. They don't lock us into our own version of the Dust Bowl stories that we tell ourselves. As they have done, they don't have to keep doing that tomorrow. Now, men. We are much less likely to show or to admit to or even to acknowledge to ourselves that those chemical surges happen in us. Uh, They do. Men do feel anxious, we do. Men do feel sorrow and rejection and alone and loneliness, we do. And hiding from the awareness of those experiences, it can make us feel like we are proper American males but that doesn't necessarily make us healthy human beings. So environmental awareness focuses on a single sensation in order to step back from the brain on fire. Emotional awareness helps us feel our feelings and does the same thing. It allows us to be more present in this moment so that we are less hijacked by the past or the future. Which brings up the third level, which is inner world self-awareness. Awareness of our judgments, the ones that come back again and again, the beliefs that evoke those emotions, the stories that we tell ourselves, usually told beneath, beneath the level of our awareness, stories about what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, about other people. Well, this one, inner world awareness, It's the focus of our self-awareness practice. It's the focus of the Enneagram. When we're asking the questions, which is what we do in our self-awareness practice, I think it's the fifth or the sixth question, uh, we ask ourselves, what would be a good name for this pattern that I've just seen inside of myself? Now, I think it's the hardest question, uh, but thankfully we have each other to help each other wrestle with the question. But over the years, as people have gone through that and said, what would be a good name for this pattern? We've gathered some of those names, and I cut and pasted them from a document that you can find on our website. And here's uh, a few of them. I'm not good enough, or you're not good enough. (laughs) I can't trust me, or I can't trust you or anybody. Uh, I have to please people, always. I have to be strong, always. I have to stay calm, always. There's not enough X for me. There's not enough love for me. There's not enough money for me. There's not enough favor for me. Whatever X is, there's not enough for me. Mistakes are not allowed. Needs are not allowed. But bad feelings are not allowed. Don't assert, that's bad. Don't not assert, because that's bad. Now here's the thing about these inner judgments and beliefs. Rarely does someone do the work to get down there, find it, unearth it, and then feel good about it. (laughs) No, we do all this work. We ask these questions. We look into our feelings. We look into the stories that we tell ourselves. We find the pattern, and we get down there. And when we finally see it, the most common response is, Ooh, (laughs) that's in me? Ugh. 
Because really, who wants to see that some part of them believes that they can't have needs? We know that's crazy. We know it makes no sense. What? That's in me? Ooh. Don't depend upon anybody. Don't make mistakes. Always be calm. Always please other people. Really? That's in me? No. We don't like to unearth that stuff because it's embarrassing. It's discouraging. But that, it turns out, is a big part of the problem. Because those inner hidden stories are working really hard to stay inner and hidden. Because we don't like to see them. We pick up some belief early on in life, before we even have the cognitive capacity to have an informed view of reality. And then we integrate that into our worlds. We never examine it, we never assess it, and then some data point comes along, reinforces it when we're teenagers, reinforces it again later, and we just leave that thing down there. And part of why we don't like to see it is the very reason that we don't like it. Because it often is unreasonable. Often those stories are not true enough. Unexamined, unseen, they still stay down there and they keep being unreasonable and they keep being not true enough. One of the common questions we ask the very end of the process is we then, up until then, the person who is sending the message will be the one that talks and everybody else just listens. But when we get to the end, we kind of talk back and forth because we try and poke holes in the narratives. And one of the most common questions we ask when we poke hole in the narrative is, if this was your story, let's just pick one. I have to be calm always. Let's just say this person has a child. What if your child held that belief? Oh, that would be awful. I would not want that for my child. I would tell my child that it's not true. Well, then why is it true for you and not true for your child? Because we do those things. They're not reasonable. They're not rational. But they're there, nonetheless, dictating our days. And we don't like admitting to ourselves that that kind of ugliness is down inside dictating our days. So they remain there. And what they end up do is they, doing is they drive our reactive responses to our worlds. They affect our health. They affect our bodies, they affect our relationships, they affect our work, and they keep us unaware of what actually is. Driving reactions, stimulus X happens, and we automatically do reaction Y. And off we go to do the thing, to say the thing, to pump out the chemicals. And a lot of people can go a whole lifetime, reaction after reaction after reaction, blood supply responding to unseen beliefs, stimulating and feeding the brain on fire thing, leaving our better self parts unfed, unstimulated. So am I as self-aware as I think I am? For most of us, on most days of our lives, no. But ancient wisdom. But ancient practices. But contemporary brain science. We don't have to settle for automated living. We don't have to settle for reactionary lives. We don't have to stop at, oh, the human heart is deceitful. We don't have to start there. We can begin to understand. Now those who've gone before us, they prayed that prayer. Oh God, help me. Try me, test me, show me my ways. And their prayers were answered. And then they wrote down what they learned and they left it for us. We have a legacy of instructions. Here's how to rise above your natural selection self. 
Here's how to live into your aspirational self. Here's how to draw from your truer self, your inner light self, your divine center self. Here's how. Start with environmental self-awareness. Body scan meditation, that's a good place to start. Do the work of emotional self-awareness. Ask the questions, that's a good place to start. Work on the inner life awareness. Come meet with Robin, talk about the Enneagram and see the pitfalls, that's a good place to start. We don't have to stay there. We're all there, we just don't have to stay. So in Dwelling Divine, the practices that help us stay in the here and now, the practices that help us not be hijacked by brains on fire, more attention to the interior light, that's our prayer. Amen. Well, if you would prepare your offerings, you are right. It does. <laughs> this is how long it goes. <laughs> <coughs> Never mind. So if you are in the, uh, if you're in the directory, you got our new treasurer's report. Thank you, Matt. Matt is doing Scott proud. Uh, we're not too far, but we are a little bit behind budget. But here's the thing I've been wondering. <clears throat> a couple of the places that we've looked at, if we're going to move there, there's going to be some cost associated with uh, updating. So this is not really a good time to be behind budget. So if you're behind on your giving, it's a good time to catch up. Remember what I say all the time. Spiritual community is a great place to invest because the return on investment is great. We give our time and our energy and our love and our dollars, and then the community takes that and gives us back to us in the form of, uh, of an environment in which we flourish and thrive. So we all donate online up at the top on the donate button. Now in a moment, we're going to dismiss you all, the live stream folks, and we're going to work on the questions together here in the room. Now remember, two Sundays, the 20th and the 27th, the pilot project. We're going to try and do uh, on Zoom what we do here in person. Uh, if uh, we get participation, we're going to make it a thing, so show up. All right. If you would, let's put our hands on our hearts, and let's remember that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine. Love and joy, peace, patience, and kindness and goodness are within us because the inner light is within us. And if you would, extend your other hand to our city. Let's look for opportunities to share what's in us with the people that we live and work and go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair and heal our worlds. Amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed. And the rest of us, let's form groups of... We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you'd like to take an ownership stake in the well-being of the community, we all contribute online. You'll find a donate button at the top of our website. See you next time. We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you